Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And hey, welcome to the Investor Coaching Show. We talk money and investing, financial planning, retirement planning, how to not mess up <laughs> or do the best you can because so much of the information we get about investing is coming from people selling things to us. So we want to get away from that, become an educated investor because then it's a lot harder to take advantage of you. Our work here with me, man. All right. So, uh, We'll have a little bit to talk about this hour. I think uh, we'll get in a couple things. There's always something to talk about, Paul. You know what? Um, you know something kind of in the news a lot, and it's been one of those weird years. You know, we're getting close to the end of the year, and I like to talk about like what's happened during the course of the year. I think it's been a weird year, Ira, in that what we've been seeing is like seven companies. <laughs> called the Magnificent Seven by some that have just done really, really well. And where they have done really, really well, of course, uh, is in returns because of artificial intelligence. And I saw something this week that just kind of, I thought, this is really, really interesting. So we, we look at these companies that have, that have done well. Now, you're a company and you're thinking of how can I adapt where... There are just certain businesses, you know, rocking and rolling because they're expected to be very much benefiting from the new artificial intelligence that's coming around. But let's say you own a company that's not one of those seven, because what we're thinking about is, well, if we're going to do well in this new era with artificial intelligence, we have to be really huge and be one of these companies that can take advantage of it where smaller companies aren't going to be able to. And that's what investors have been thinking. Don't you, don't you kind of think the reason those companies have done well compared to others, people have thought that that is who's going to benefit from this? Yeah, and I saw that back in the mid to late 90s with all the dot-com oh, companies that had come out. Really good parallel. Yes. And clients saying, you know, let's get out of the smokestack, the Procter & Gamble, the General Motors um, and maybe it was good to add a General Motors, but I just use that as an example. No, of that's a, a really good example because uh, those yeah. those companies are the stodgy companies, as we call them. Right. Yeah. But and then what happened? You know, all the dot com companies, the technology funds that came out, mm -hmm. uh, they all went up. They had screaming returns. And I remember there were probably a half a dozen, maybe a dozen technology. Thinking people were screaming when they went crashing no. down, though. No, they, they, <laughs> you said screaming returns on the upside. I right. think they were screaming when they went yeah. down. Well, that was the, the suicide Bad scream. Bad joke. Um, no, but they were going up, and there were probably about a dozen brand new technology companies that mm. opened up in January of 2000. Uh. Because Wall Street is fabulous yeah. at putting together packages yes. that people will buy. Yes. And, yes. They, and that are easy to sell. Because yeah. if I can show you, hey, look, this is what technology has done, but, and I was guilty of that um, to a degree. Um, 
Look, right. this is what technology has done. There's this brand new fund that's going to take advantage of it because they're going to focus on technology. And they use past performance to show you how well it would have done yep. had you been in it before, right? And, yep. And then two and a half months later, the dot-com bubble burst, and then it, the joke became, it's these are the dot-bomb stocks. Right, yeah. There's so many of those companies are out of business. Right. And the same thing will happen with a lot of these AI companies. Well, didn't you see a lot of your, like clients come in you know, around that time? Because that was when you were starting to become a reformed bumble, <laughs> you know, as the Christmas show talks about, right? Yeah. It was where you started to go, oh my goodness. And, and a lot of people came in and then they really got hurt by that. Whereas if you're really diversified, you didn't see that because you had value companies, the stodgy companies that we yeah. talked about, actually do okay during that period of time when everything else, you know, all those tech companies were crashing. Well, I learned a lot in 2000. Mm. Uh, number one, I learned that I, I started, that's when I started and got introduced to the science of investing. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. That's when you started with that. Okay. Um, but I also learned that the mutual fund people that used to come around to my office to tell me how great their funds were. They didn't have any idea. Yeah, they, they had no clue. You know, when I would ask them questions. They were, start, they were caught in the same trap you know, as, as the inv regular investors. When I would ask them questions of, like, why hasn't this manager repeated the performance or why did this manager get stuck? They couldn't answer the question. Right, you know? right. What, what happened to their magic? Right. Right. So sure. that's when I began to realize that these people are just selling funds based on past performance. And that's when in 2000, when I got introduced to the fact that Past performing investing does not work. Right. Another thing that I was introduced to was not investing in a sector fund like technology mm -hmm. or financial services. Right. That's a really good point because sector funds, Wall Street Journal actually had a really good article one time, and I used it a lot on the radio, was where they said this is one of the most hazardous things that you can do as an investor is sector investing, looking to invest in just technology or just oil right. stocks or you know just energy stocks or those types of things. Well, I don't know that anybody's really investing in just technology stocks well, well, or well, just but the sector funds are. Right. That's no, no, I, mean. I get yeah. that. But you know this this asset allocation that we really subscribe to. Yeah, that we talk about a lot. Yeah. And we'll get to more about that in a second. You know, yeah. a lot of invest a lot of investment firms talk about tactical asset allocation. Right, which is, sounds like it. Right. It sounds like I'm doing something that's that's prudent. Right. And right. and what is and what it really is is just another form of market timing. Right. But you can see at certain points in time there will be certain sectors, technology financial mm -hmm. services, mm -hmm. that will actually outperform during certain periods of time Absolutely. better than other sectors. Sure. But here's the thing. When you're buying a fund that focuses on, let's just say, technology stocks, mm -hmm. those technology stocks are in the S&P 500. Right. You already own them. If you own a more broad-based portfolio, you're just overemphasizing them, expecting them to have higher returns than mm -hmm. everything else. Right. So here's the thing that I like to point out to investors. Yeah. If you really think that area of the market is going to be the best performing area, which is why you're seeming to want to overweight in that area, yeah. why not just put all your get money all into there. that one thing? <laughs> if you're really that no, really, confident. If you're really that confident. You know, it's, you know, because that's what you're doing when you're buying a technology or a financial services, or even like some of these REIT funds, your real estate investment trust funds, yeah. you know, that mutual fund that focuses on just real estate. Right. They're saying, oh, I think real estate's going to have the best return. Well, you don't really know that 
because you still have these other funds. Yeah. So why focus a heavier concentration on one area? Right. Just get out of those sector funds yeah. and keep it fully diversified so that if you happen to be wrong because you didn't get lucky and said this time you got unlucky, right. at least your money was all diversified. So let's let's just hit this for a second because this is something that a lot of times people will do. They'll own a fund that's investing in like let's say large growth companies. <laughs> And they think, well, oh, this good owns all those large growth companies. And what you got to recognize, folks, is that what sometimes people will do, com fund companies will do, is they will overemphasize. They engage in tactical asset allocation. And this is something that I tell people, let's look at it. If you're not inclined to do this, we this is something we do for people all the time. But this is something that you can look at yourself to check up on a fund. Read the prospectus. I know it's boring. But read the prospectus and look for wording like, we're looking for opportunities, we're looking for undervalued asset uh, classes or undervalued segments of the market or something like that. And you can look at turnover ratio inside of funds. In the prospectus towards the back, typically, you'll find that they'll have how much turnover is taking place or has taken place inside the fund. And that gives you, if you see like 60% turnover, it means 60% of the stocks are different from one year to the next. That tells you that the fund manager believes that they can figure out these changes and, re and recognize this. If I look at, let's say, these magnificent seven, as they call them, the big tech companies, you know, Apple and Microsoft and so on and so forth. If I look at these companies, what I'm doing is I'm assuming when I invest in them, when I assume that they're going to give me a higher rate of return in the future, I'm assuming for some crazy reason that they want to pay me, they just want to pay me more money to use my money which doesn't make any sense. No. You know, they, they're not going to do that. Now, what's interesting, Ira, is what I saw this week and kind of a buildup to this is a lot of companies out there were under the impression that Microsoft, with their size, would be, uh, would be the domin dominating force in AI. And you could see where that would be the case because they do have a far reach. And what's interesting is what's happening right now is we're actually seeing other companies combining forces. That's what I thought was some of the interesting news that was talked about. They're combining forces in order to use all of their resources to make sure that one company doesn't dominate that technology. And what they're wanting to do is make this the make it open. You know, like you think about an open architecture. Mm -hmm. And the reason, you know, I often use, because I love this example because it was so stark and, you know, the evidence is in uh, beta, you know, versus VHS. Everything right. told us that beta was better. Everything told us. And, but what they did is they tried to hold on to the technology and they tried to monopolize it and make it th them the, the go-to and you could only go there for what you needed, where VHS was more open architecture, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then what ended up happening is because other companies could benefit from VHS's success, what ended up happening is that became more promoted, even though it was the lesser technology and more people benefited. it. And that is why that ended up being the dominating force in tapes and recording. And, and now we're on the digital, but you know, then we're so, I like to use it because as an example, the, the jury's in, we know what happened. So you know, as, as you and I have talked about 
Um, I just finished re- reading the biography of Elon Musk. Elon Musk, yeah. Fabulous, fabulous read. Yeah. And he talks about AI. And yeah. he was actually one of the pioneers that mm-hmm. got yeah. started with AI. Sure but he was talking about how Google and another company, it's slipping my mind right now, how they started to get into it. And in talking to the CEOs of those companies, they did not want to use it for the same type of good that Elon Musk wanted to use it. Yeah, so therefore, interesting interview I've seen on that. Yeah, yeah and mm-hmm. so what Elon Musk did is he started another company mm-hmm. for AI, mm-hmm. but creating it with open architecture, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so a lot more companies It was literally can, who I was just referring to. Yeah, fact. okay. Yes. Yeah. So a lot mm-hmm. more companies can yes. much more easily develop AI Yeah. To compete with the, t- the companies yeah. that want to use it for more, let's say, not so good things. Right, right. And you know, when we, we think about that there's safety in the multitude of counselors, there's there's a lot more safety when you have a lot of minds working together on something. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and that's exactly what's what has happened. You know, so we look at how they're going to be using this in the future. And you know, you look at these companies that have benefited. But the reality and the point that I'm trying to make here is that it will be the overall marketplace that benefits in a big way from this. So by going and concentrating on yesterday's winners, we aren't necessarily going to be and probably not going to be in the areas of the market that will benefit going forward. And this is recognized, this will be used in the marketing of mutual funds the funds that happen to own these companies before they ballooned in value, and they will use it to try to convince you that their skill is where that return came from, rather than they just happen to be get lucky and happen to be in the area that did well. You know, so I think it's it's critical to get that because you know what we often don't recognize is that we are so subject to marketing and we can be so pulled in, and it's really what's happening is there's appeal to greed. It's our emotions. You know, I often talk about this. I, I use this as an example, and, uh, I'll, and I'll use it again and again and again. But we have a fear of the future. We want to predict the future. We look at the past to do that. Then what happens? We get overloaded with information because everybody tells us how great they are. And typically, everybody that had a good performance in the past is really trumpeting how great they are. And then we end up making emotion-based decisions. We break the rules of investing. Then we end up with performance losses and we may not lose money, but we lose money relatively. And then we end up back in the fear of the future again. And this cycle to get out of it, you have to get into a, to where you understand a little bit more about markets and then coaching. We talk about coaching all the time, just guiding and, and, and which is interesting. The reason I bring this all up, Ira, is because one of the things that I was surprised at years ago that I heard, I didn't know that Elon Musk was one of those guys that wanted to pursue the idea of do-it-yourself investing through the robotic in- investing and in- in all of that. And he was one of the pioneers there. And what he recognized is that the robots, number one, putting together portfolios are still to try to attract money, appealing to the same instincts and emotions that the investment advisors were. And the investors were sabotaging their portfolios. And it is our very humanness that didn't make that whole thing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and he's a guy that he walked away from it to his, to his credit. He walked away from it. He says this, okay, there, there's too much humanness in people. And this 
uh, automating this process doesn't work the way I thought it would. And that is, and this is a, a perfect testament as to why that doesn't work because it is our instincts, our desire to go toward pleasure, stay away from pain, our emotions, greed, fear, loyalty, uh, you know, all of these things cause us to make mistakes with investing. And that's why we're, we're so big on you learning, number one, and then constantly, you know, it's, it's like going to church every, every week. You have to go to church to kind of remember what you forgot the previous week. And it, that's why the ongoing coaching process is so important. Yeah. And to me, that's the biggest part is, you know, finding not only somebody like us who can coach you, but one of the things that I think is good is that we do workshops. And you find out that you're not alone in this. Well, that's a really good point. You yeah. know, it's it's very, very difficult because a lot of our message or all of our message might be a little contradictory to what is being advertised out there. Sure. So it it's makes it sound like, well, yeah, really is. is this really something? But when we show you the evidence of it, yeah. you know, there are two ways I, I say of investing. There's investing based on evidence. Right. And there's the investing based on story. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Now, Freddy Krueger in Friday the 13th, I think he was in Friday the 13th, that horror movie. <laughs> You're talking about movies. Okay. Don't go there with me. You that, know that was not, <laughs> there's no evidence of that. But it's a great story. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. When I you know, got into this business you know, back in 1984, you know, we created a story. We had, you know, we got, had our sales meeting of the stock we were all pitching that week, mm -hmm. and the manager gave us the story. Right. And we all wrote it down on a yellow pad, <laughs> oh and goodness. then we went back to our desk and we started calling people and telling them the story. This is why you need to invest okay? in this. Yeah. And there was one guy. His name was Charlie. I won't say his last name, but he got on the phone. Not Charlie Munger. No, no, no <laughs> but not Charlie Munger. <laughs> and he got on the phone, and part of his story was, look. I can tell you this is going to go up. I, I'm not allowed to tell you that. Uh -huh. But if I was you, I would put my spacesuit on. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you might as well have told me it was going to go okay. way up. <laughs> so it's a, it's a story. Yeah. And past performance yeah. is a story. Yeah, for sure. Because we don't know what's going to happen. Right, right, you know, but, but they sure act like they do. They sure, and they, <laughs> and it says and they make a, from Princeton said. right, and they make a lot of money doing it. Yeah, exactly. They make a lot of money doing it for sure. Um, but asset allocation, we talked about that, um, and we'll get to that even more as 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 this hour goes on. So stay tuned for and we'll get into that. Evidence based investing. I want to invest, and I've done it for over twenty years now, and it's how I work with my clients. I want to invest based upon real evidence. Yeah. A, a manager's five or 10 year track record is not long enough. I recommended funds like that. I recommended five star yeah. funds. Well, you hear that, that one, went three, down. five, and 10. And you know, the other thing is, is you see a lot of investment firms, you know, going on TV and, and you know, talking, and, you know, and, they'll, and they'll go on and they'll say, you know, it's, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about what the market's doing. And then typically it's about the S&P and it's the Dow, and you know, you're only hearing very, very, very small segments of the market. And I think talking, you don't hear us talk about what the market did very much. Uh, you know, you won't hear us talk about that. And the reason we don't, you know, I had, is I, probably what I was about to say. I, I had a call the other day from a guy. Uh, mm -hmm. and he's like, well, what, what are your returns? I'm like, it doesn't matter what our returns were for the last five years. 
Um, it's what is going to happen. So, well, I've had a portfolio now that hasn't done anything, and this is not with us, and when I share another minute, mm -hmm. um, it hasn't done anything for five years. I've just gotten back to breaking even from five years yeah, ago. That's pretty pitiful. So he showed me his portfolio and told me the list of stocks, yeah. and I'm jotting them down. He had 18 stocks. Oh, my goodness. $250,000 invested wow. in 18 stocks. Wow. He says, well, you know, Based, you know, what compared to what the market's doing, I'm like, all right, first of all, when you say the market, or when you hear the market on radio or television, they're talking about the Dow, you or the SP if you're lucky, and, and the NASDAQ. Well, no, when, when they say the market, well, they usually, but you'll usually hear about those three because those all three will t typically go up together because it's the same asset class, but anyway, yes. yeah, yes, that's very true. Um, but he said, but. I said, well, the, when you're saying the market, that when you hear that on TV, they're saying, you know, the market was up 300, the market was down 200, whatever. That's the Dow. So you don't own the Dow. You own 18 stocks. Right, right. And some of them are not even in the Dow. Yeah, sure, sure. So is the S&P 500 a better index for me to be comparing my portfolio to? I'm like... It's, no. Well, it's it's a little bit better because you got more companies, but it's still the same problem. But actually, it's worse because you own eighteen stocks. That's five hundred. Oh, for, to, to, for him to compare to, I, my mind was to be you know looking at is what the market did. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, that's a really good point. Right, so okay, should, right, what that's what he was saying. So yeah. should I be using the S and P to compare my portfolio? To? Like, no, that's even worse than the Dow because that's five hundred companies. You own eighteen. Right. Yeah. You know, if you want to compare your you portfolio to the S&P, you need to own a fund that has probably at least 450 to 550 companies in it. To, if to, to compare. To compare. But what should you be in? It's, uh, you know, a whole different deal. You might own tens of thousands just for that. So that if you're going, how many should I own? You might hear that and go, what, tens of thousands? Yeah, when we're talking diversification, that's what we're talking about. Anyway, let's take a quick break. Be right back after this. And I'm going to actually, just to, as a, Ira said something in this segment that I want to expand on a little bit, but he said, it doesn't matter what our portfolios did or what, you know, what our, our return is. Um, and the reason that he said that comes down to how do we actually judge the portfolio? So we'll hit that really, really quickly after that and explain what he meant by that. So listening to the Investor Coaching Show right here on Supertalk 99.7. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything that we do is fee-only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, so we're just talking a little bit about, you know, in particular,
particular, a, a gentleman was asking Ira something, had very few companies had no return, you said, over five years? Yeah, he said he had, he had no return over the last five years. And he actually, the portfolio went down, which would have made sense because if he got into the portfolio a year and a half or so before COVID and the portfolios dropped. But he probably owned companies that did well, they bought stocks based on historical performance. So the, the the track record prior to him buying those 18 stocks was probably pretty good. And it was probably a good story that was told about those 18 companies. All right. So one of the companies that he bought was Coca-Cola. Okay. So I had asked him, did you know for sure that Coca-Cola is going to outperform Pepsi? He said, no, I think Pepsi is going to do better. Mm-hmm. I said, then why do you own Coke? Well, that's what the advisor recommended. Okay. So, but let's, let's just talk about the, you know, the performance thing. So when we talk about what happened over, what the, how about, you know, what, Paul, what did your portfolio do? You know, your own investments, let's say, let's just use that as an example over any period of time. Typically I dodge that question. And the reason is because we don't judge our investments the way we judge our cars. I look at a car and I go, well, this is a good car because the past performance of the car, it's been reliable works. Investing markets, you know, if what happens, if you, let's say, if you look at the last year and say, what was the return of a portfolio of last year? And let's say that asset classes all around the world happen to have had a rough year. You'd look at that and go, well, it's a negative return. That means it's bad. And the reality of it is markets go up and down. And that is not how you judge a portfolio. What we look at when we're judging a portfolio is we're looking at how well is it mixed? How well am I diversified or mixed between asset classes around the world that historically move in dissimilar fashion? And the reason that is the case is, let me just use large US stocks, large international stocks. If we go back to the 1950s and we look at large US stocks versus large British stocks, what you'll notice is that the 50 year return is within like, like a fraction of 1% return difference between the two of them. And you look at it and go, wow, they're just about the same exact return, but how they got there was different. One would zig while the other one zags. And, you know, in some years, you might have the 70s where international did super, super well and US did nothing. That is what we look at. How well are we mixed between these asset categories? And then what we look at is each component, each fund, how well is it tracked the asset category that it's investing in? If we see big differences, where you've got a small cap uh, stock fund or a large cap stock fund uh, that has a, let's say, large cap, large cap, and it has very dissimilar price movement with the S&P 500, there is where you're dealing with a problem because now it had, maybe had greater performance. You think, oh, great. But then that tells me the fund manager may have gambled and gotten lucky and outpaced the market. If the market, if they actually get unlucky next time, guess what? You end up with losses. So that's why this is so critical. This is benchmarking. It's a whole other set, it's a whole other subject. But I wanted you to understand before we go to break here that there is a way of judging a portfolio that is objective, and that's really what it gets down to. So it's not that it returns don't matter. It's just that is not the criteria for judging whether things are going okay. It's how well things benchmark with each other. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors. 
and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.